To Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Rock Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, blood and quantum computing. So stay tuned for all this here on the Rock Science Show. back to the program, what's been known for over 100 years that humans have blood types and that transmission among the wrong types can lead to death. With our understanding of genetics, the main classification for blood is the ABO in which A and B correspond to antigens which are expressed in the blood. But where does this trait come from? Did it evolve in humans or did it come from an earlier ancestor? Well joining us today is our special guest Dr. Lore Segurel. We'll talk about her work in elucidating this mystery. Her work was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. Dr. Segurel is a postdoctoral fellow from the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Chicago. Uh, Dr. Segurel, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. To begin with, could you tell us a little bit about the science behind blood types and uh, the genetics behind it? Sure. So um, what's remarkable about the um, ABO blood group in particular is that uh, it's been known for for a while that it's been uh, polymorphic in multiple different species. So it means that we're not the only one having uh, blood type A, B, and O, but there's actually a lot of of different primate species that also have uh, those different forms. So they're polymorphic for this. Uh, what was what was also known is that we use the exact same genetic basis, so it means that we use the exact same mutation differences between the the A and the B blood type um, to have those uh, those different kind of enzyme. Uh, what was not known is whether whether all the primates all got the same mutation independently. So it could have been like pretty recently. Um, so for example, if the ancestor was of type. A, and then suddenly, for some reason, all different primates um, started getting the mutation that led them to having the, the type B, or, or whether the ancestor of all primates originally had both types, so the A and the B types, and so what would be really uh, remarkable in that case is that it means that it would have been maintained for um, millions of years in the different primate lineages. So, so what, we, what we've shown is that we highly um, uh, favor the, the second hypothesis so that the ABO blood group is actually not something that was recent, uh, but something that is shared um, identical among, uh, among different sort of primate species, uh, and so it means that it's really old. And just to give us a little background, uh, what exactly is this ABO theory and what, how did scientists determine that there were two main antigens in the blood? Yeah, so that's what's also interesting about the ABO blood group is that everybody knows it because of the transfusion incompatibility. So, of course, if you if you um, put some blood uh, from an individual that's type A into an individual that's type B, there's going to be some transfusion incompatibility, meaning that there's a immune reaction of the of the body of the recipient. So you, you try to kill the blood of the other person, so that leads to a huge um, immune response. 
that's actually how the blood groups were discovered um, early um, early this century and, and led to a Nobel Prize. Uh, but that really doesn't say much about what's the what the real function of ABU in the body. That's just a byproduct. That's just for us uh, the way to to know it. So so what the ABU gene uh, and product is doing is actually modifying something that's expressed uh, on the surface of our cells. So we express those little um, blue seed molecules on the surface of our cells. And depending if you have an enzyme type A or type B, or if you don't have any enzyme, which is type O, you modify it differently. So you express something, the antigens, you express something that is different on the surface of your cells. Mm -hmm. And so that's recognized um, if, um, if some cell from a donor A is, is put into um, an individual B. This idea of the blood type exists among all humans. Does it hold consistently throughout the different races? Um, so all populations have uh, quite um, a number of different blood groups. So the, the fact to see A, B, and O, um, A, B, and O are found in a number of different populations. The only mm -hmm. exception would be um, the Americas, the native uh, Amerindians, because there was such a reduction of genetic diversity when the Americas that they lost uh, blood group uh, A and B. So they're mostly O. Um, so O is kind of fixed for this for this continent, for the native population. Uh, other than that, there's differences in frequencies. For example, the B blood type is more frequent in India and some part of Asia. So there, there are differences, but it's but mostly, yeah, the, the three different bloods which are shared by, by most uh, human populations. Your work dealt with the inheritance from a, um, a distant relative, a distant primate, and you also indicate that this the ABO concept is prevalent in... Uh, all the different primate species. Uh, are, are there variations uh, when you examine between species, or are they the same genetic markers that you see among them? So there's there's variation mostly in the in the frequencies in the the phenotype. For example, chimp and bonobos only have type A; they do not have the type B, and uh, gorilla only have the type B. So so there's definitely um, there's been some fixation, and and some of our close related primates are are fixed for one or the other type. Uh, but what was interesting for us is to compare uh, the genetic basis in the species that, that have A, N, B, S, S. So, for example, Orang and Gibbons are species where the A and the B blood type have been maintained. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we compare the, the exact, um, the very small region of the genome in the ABO gene that's responsible for the, for the functional differences between A and B, we could see that if you look at that region, a human of type A is actually closer to a given A uh, than to another human of type B. So it's pretty remarkable because for the for the entire genome, of course, two humans are always going to be more similar than if you compare them to another species. Uh, but for this particular region of the genome, actually a human A and a given A are closer um, than a human A and a human B. So that, that means there's more similarity between individuals that are not in the same species. I'm just curious, have there been any evolutionary explanation why there are uh, different blood types? So, so yeah, as I was saying at the beginning, like all the focus on ABO so far has been mostly due to the uh, phenotyping transfusion incompatibility. Uh -huh. And so I think that people in general didn't really uh, ask so much the question of why, you know, why is it polymorphic, why is it maintained, why is it, what is it doing in the human body? So the ABO was originally called the ABO blood group. It would then uh, change to be called the ABO histo blood group. And that's just to emphasize that the ABO antigens are actually expressed in many, many places in our body. So it can, for example, it's in fluid, as in milk or urine, it's in the serum, uh, and it's expressed in a, at the surface of many, many different cells. 
for example, throughout the entire gastrointestinal tract, so in different epithelial endothelial cells. So the ABO is definitely not restricted to the blood cells, but that's just the way we discovered it. So what's interesting is to see that in other primates, so for example, in a, in over monkey where the ABO blood group has also been maintained, uh, the ABO antigens are not expressed at the surface of the red blood cells. Mm-hmm. And um, and in the newer monkey, it's not even expressed in any um, vascular um, places. So it really means that it has been maintained in, in humans, of course, been maintained in other hominoids, in old monkey and newer monkey, but we at the end are the only one that express it at the surface of the red blood cells. So if if, his, if the role of ABO is so important that it's been maintained for 20 million years, then certainly it, it doesn't have to do anything with its expression on red blood cells, but maybe more, maybe more, for example, the fact that it's expressed through the gastrointestinal tract, and that could be because that's exactly where uh, we are in contact with a lot of pathogens. So, so it could be something um, more in, in relationship to coevolution with pathogen, not necessarily in the blood, but maybe in other tissues. There's been a lot of research these days indicating the role of the gastrointestinal tract with diseases like allergies. Have you found any correlation between blood types and certain autoimmune diseases in people? Um, so there is a lot of known correlation between ABO blood blood type and infectious disease. Uh, I don't think so much with uh, autoimmune disease or, you know, uh, allergic diseases. There's a lot of association between uh, ABO, for example, and uh, uh, plague or tuberculosis or different kinds of uh, infectious disease. So so we really think it, it has to do with coevolution with pathogens. Obviously, a lot of work still to be done to understand what's the biology of it, but um, it's, it's not obvious to me that it would necessarily have to do with any allergic disease. So, of course, you, you've, uh, you mentioned ABO as a classification of blood types, and, of course, there are also other ways of classifying, including the RH and RH-. Are they independent of each other, or are they somehow correlated? Um, they're definitely correlated in some ways. For example, for the association between ABO and some diseases, it's shown that it's also, it's not just the blood type you have, but it's also the association with the blood type and whether you're a negative or positive in terms of reasons. So absolutely, there must be correlation because that's the, what's expressed at the surface of our cell is used uh, by viruses that try to enter the cell. So they're they're trying to get an entry in, an entry in the cell, right? So they're 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 able to use many different types of antigen. So they're actually adapting to the whole you know landscape of what's expressed on the surface of our cell. So definitely there 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 are correlations. There is more than there is in humans. There is uh, 30 known um, blood groups. So it means um, antigens expressed on the surface of our cell and that vary among individuals. So ABO is, is definitely not the only one. It just seems to be the more um, the one with the higher immune reaction. Like that's really the thing that leads to uh, transferring compatibility. The rest, the rest doesn't lead to such strong immune reactions. When someone gets a transfusion, as long as they have the same ABO type, they should be safe. Is that right? Exactly. I mean, ABO and resist, because we know that you also have to, to know if you're O negative or O positive, because that's also a strong reaction. But uh, for the other ones, even though we might vary in other things we're expressing, uh, this is not um, this is not important. This is not leading to a huge reaction. One last question. Um, so in, in many Asian cultures, there's a, a perception that your blood type corresponds to a certain personality. Is that scientifically yeah. established or not? 
I don't I don't give any scientific support to it. Um, I mean, I don't uh, I don't think there's uh, any you know statistic correlation. Uh, if one could even uh, summarize personality you know by categories, um, I don't think there's any any really real scientific work. There's any uh, any support for it, but uh, you know I respect everybody's belief. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, great. Well, that's very exciting work you're doing. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add or uh, what future direction this research will lead to? Well, I, I really hope that, um, I mean, we're doing evolutionary genetics, uh, so I really hope that people more into some functional skills are going to follow up on, you know, for example, infecting cells with different ABO blood types to see uh, what exactly um, the correlation between the blood type and, you know, disease infection or, or clearance of the pathogens. Um, because for now, the coevolution with pathogens is, you know, is really suggestive. It's really in hypothesis of work, uh, but it's not confirmed. So I would really like to see what the, what the exact uh, set of pathogens that ADO is interacting with. And, um, and I think it's, it's really nice to know that it's, uh, it's, it's of importance in other primates because it really helps us understanding uh, what's the selective pressure. So wh- wh- whatever the reason for which ABO has been maintained for so long, it has something to, that is shared between all primates. So that's really nice to, to think of you know, some selective pressure in the environment, maybe in the pathogens, that we all share with uh, our monkey and newer monkey. So that, that still has to be uh, uncovered, and, uh, and I think that's really exciting. Well, Dr. Seguirel, uh, it's been a very insightful discussion today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me. And we were just joined by Dr. Laura Seguirel from the University of Chicago. We were just talking about her work in elucidating the origins of the ABO blood type. In a few moments, Professor Alexey Kitayev will join us to talk about the awarding of his fundamental prize in physics. So stay right there. Welcome back to the program. Well, physics just got a big boost this year. Yuri Milner, a Russian entrepreneur and venture capitalist, has established the Fundamental Physics Prize. This year, nine physicists were awarded the prize for a grand total of $27 million in prize money. And joining us right now is one of our distinguished laureates, um, Professor Alexei Kitaev from the California Institute of Technology. He is Professor of Physics, Computer Science, and Mathematics. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Kitayev. Uh, hello. Uh, thank you. Uh, first of all, I just want to congratulate you on the prize. Thank you very much. Yeah, this prize was a big surprise to me. <laughs> okay. As I, I've, yeah. I've heard uh, about the same um, uh, reaction from some of the other other scientists who've been awarded. Well, certainly this is a really exciting time. Could you give us a little background into the work that led up to this prize? Yeah, uh, I received this prize uh, for my work in uh, the area of quantum computation. First, let me say a few words about 
quantum computation in general, and then uh, I'll continue about uh, what I have done in that area. Uh, quantum computing is a great idea, and uh, uh, the idea starts with this observation that uh, may sound rather pessimistic or n not a good thing, but it's actually a great thing. When we think about quantum mechanics problems, we find that uh, it's difficult to compute uh, especially when uh, the system is large, uh, like uh, an atom or a molecule. In those particular cases, uh, some approximate methods uh, have been developed, but in general, a quantum mechanical problem with uh, many degrees of freedom uh, is hard to solve or hard to simulate on a computer. The idea of quantum computing is that this complexity can be used to solve other difficult problems. Uh, since nature can solve one uh, hard problem for us, uh, namely uh, simulating quantum systems, uh, a quantum system simulates itself, we could try to map other problems to this problem, and then uh, nature will, will solve uh, those other problems for us. As far as I know, this idea was introduced by Yuri Manin, and I was uh, lucky to read about that uh, very early when I was an undergraduate. It was in a, a book uh, called Computable and Uncomputable, which was published in Russian. And uh, in the introduction to the book, there were just uh, two paragraphs which explained this idea in uh, some general terms, or rather vague terms. And uh, when I read that, I was very excited. But uh, of course, I was an undergraduate. I didn't know what to do with this idea. I was looking. There are some developments and uh, some more uh, concrete uh, things. And uh, they didn't exist at the time, but uh, they were coming because uh, soon after that, there was a paper by Richard Feynman. I, felt, uh, I missed the first paper, but uh, the other one in 1985. I, I read it and I was also very excited and uh, I started working on the subject uh, around 1994. Soon after I started, uh, I heard about uh, Short's result and it was exciting, of course, uh -huh. about uh, factoring. But um, the work I was awarded uh, this prize for is about a particular way of doing quantum computation. You probably heard that a quantum computer does not exist yet. And uh, uh, that is because it's difficult uh, to control quantum systems and it's a big technological challenge to build a quantum computer. What we would like to do is to make many qubits, a bunch of qubits. A qubit is a quantum version of a bit. Uh, and uh, in the simplest case, it could be a spin or it could be any other quantum system with uh, two states, uh, uh, up or down, uh, or zero and one. And uh, if there are many qubits, uh, then the system can be in an arbitrary superposition of uh, two to the n state, mm -hmm. n is the number of qubits. So that's uh, the rough idea of uh, quantum memory, uh, and uh, quantum computing would be uh, some manipulation of those quantum states. The problem is that it's difficult to uh, make those manipulations precise, and it's also difficult to keep uh, quantum information intact. Uh, it tends to decohere. Uh, quantum states tend to decohere by interaction with the environment. Uh, so some way to, to correct errors and uh, to manage uh, the decoherence is necessary, to prevent the unwanted decoherence is necessary. There is a concept of uh, a quantum error-correcting code. Quantum error-correcting code is just like a classical error-correcting code when we 
encode a few bits into a larger number of bits. For example, we can copy each bit, uh, say, three times or uh, five times, and uh, we can use this redundancy uh, to correct errors. If uh, one of those five bits flips, we can compare it with it, its neighbors, and we see if uh, one bit has flipped, uh, it's different from its neighbors, and we can correct uh, this error. We can correct the flipped bit. It's somewhat similar a uh, scheme would work for quantum computing, but uh, it's not uh, that simple. Uh, quantum error corrected, uh, correcting codes are all uh, rather complicated, and uh, they're expensive to implement. Uh, so I came up with this idea uh, that some quantum error correcting codes uh, could be implemented physically. So uh, uh, they would be implemented uh, at the lowest level possible at just a physical system that consists of electrons or uh, physical spins that naturally interact with, uh, with each other, and uh, this system corrects errors by itself. But uh, it, it must be a special kind of system. Uh, in my work, I, I found examples of quantum error-correcting codes mathematically, just uh, figuring what uh, this code sh should look like, and I found examples of physical systems uh, that uh, basically implement those codes. And uh, this implementation uh, uses so-called topological quantum phases. A topological quantum phase, well, first let me uh, say a few words about quantum phases. Uh, a quantum phase is a state of uh, quantum elements like electrons when they, are, uh, they interact in a certain way. For example, uh, we can have a two-dimensional electron gas. These are electrons that are confined in two dimensions by special structure. And uh, in this electron gas, electrons can form special a quantum phase uh, that has a quantum Hall effect, integer quantum Hall effect, fractional quantum Hall effect. Uh, this is an example of a quantum phase. Fractional quantum Hall phases are actually topological. They have non-trivial topological properties. Now, some of these topological phases can be used for uh, implementing quantum memories because uh, they support particles called non-abelian anions. These are special quasi-particles. So, uh, let me clarify. Uh, to make a topological phase, we arrange uh, a certain interaction between the electrons or between spins or so something else. I just want to get some background on the quantum computing. So, so the idea is that in contrast to conventional computing where bits are processed one by one, what you're saying is that now these bits can take on both the zero and one states at the same time when you process them. In a classical computer, if we have one bit, uh, there are two states, zero and one. If we have, say, uh, three bits, there are eight states, two to the three, all combinations of zeros uh, and ones. But at, a particular, at any particular time, it's one of those eight states. Okay. In, uh, it's also possible that uh, the system is in a superposition of, say, uh, right. zero, one, zero, and uh, uh, one, one, one. And uh, that's the difference. So any superposition is allowed. And uh, the number of possible states is huge. It's basically any superposition is described by eight numbers for each of the basis states, for each combination of zeros, uh, zeros and ones. One needs to assign a number that is called quantum amplitude to describe the state. Uh, I, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Is there any last words you'd like to add about your research? I, I can just say what I'm doing right now. I'm focusing on uh, topological phases 
and uh, I, I study them from the mathematical perspective. I just want to understand what kinds of phases are possible in principle. And uh, this involves some beautiful mathematics. Uh, it's uh, related to uh, the recent discovery of topological insulators, uh, which are topological phases, uh, slightly different kind. Uh, they are not directly usable to build a quantum computer. They may be useful in an indirect way to implement my RNA modes, but uh, uh, this is just an example, and uh, I'm trying to understand uh, what uh, other examples could exist in principle. Uh, so I'm working on the mathematical classification of topological things. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, it's been a very inspiring talk, and I hope uh, um, we'll get to see more of your work in the years to come. Thank you. It was a pleasure answering your questions. And we were just talking to Dr. Alexei Katayev, one of the inaugural winners of the Fundamental Physics Prize. He's professor at the California Institute of Technology, and we were just talking about his work in quantum computing. And that's all for this week's edition of the Rock Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week again for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. If you want to contact us, you can email us at science at grox.net. You can also see us on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook and Twitter. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music.